Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight, V Radio is proud to present Noel Hunter, uh, also known as Tank Top on the forums, and also known as Hero in the credits for Zeitgeist Addendum and Zeitgeist Moving Forward. Uh, Noel, welcome to V Radio. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, I guess uh, go ahead and give them a little background on yourself, and then and we'll start from there. Okay. Um, what, what exactly uh, do you think I should tell them? Well, I guess well, the first question that I generally ask a guest that hasn't been on V-Radio before is, what was the precipice for you? What was the moment that kind of brought you out of the box or out of the typical American Idol generation? At what point did you decide to become an activist, essentially? Okay, well, I mean, I've been an activist for pretty much all of my adult life since college, um, primarily through playing in bands and kind of being active in the punk rock scene in the 80s. Um, I was involved in a lot of uh, protests, uh, you know, when Reagan was president, some left-wing things, um, from protesting against David Duke coming to my hometown to uh, animal rights, uh, protests and things like that. Um, for the Zeitgeist movement, I sort of came in uh, you know, through the through involvement in the movies and friendship, rather than being exposed to it, uh, you know, uh, by watching the movies. Right. So I guess then, I mean, did you have an like kind of an activist childhood? I mean, were your parents activists? Is that where it came from, or? Uh, no, they're, my parents are both very religious, um, although they're Methodists, so they, you know, they tended to do things like volunteer at homeless shelters, and, um, I was involved with Habitat for Humanity and sort of, um, social, uh, you know, social things, uh, with, uh, charity work, Mm -hmm. um, and then in college is when I started becoming more politically active. Oh well, I guess that I guess that's a good thing. I know a lot of people do kind of go through that in college. Now, um, it, you know, it sounds to me like you had an interesting resume of activism. Then from the very beginning, I know like uh, somebody in the chat room just said, you know, after you mentioned Habitat for Humanity, I guess you're a real hero then. <laughs> so you actually got involved and did something. Now, um, so how did you meet Peter? Um, I've known Peter since. He was, I guess, about 16. Um, in one of the bands that I was in, the guitarist in the band was friends with um, him in high school, and uh, they used to share rides to various things. So he would come by and pick up my my friend, and and then, so that's how. And then he started coming to some of our shows. Um, later on, he was uh, in school with the drummer for the band. So I would come to his recitals and, um, and some of his performances and, um, just through, um, through sharing, uh, musical performances is how I knew him, uh, when he was in high school and college. So music then, I guess, yeah, you just mentioned the punk rock scene in the eighties. It's actually the scene that created my favorite band, Guns N' Roses. Most people don't know that they have a punk background. I think it's largely because of the fact that their lead guitarist sounds very blues. It's kind of funny the way that band came together because they were kind of a hybrid of a bunch of different things that were being done at the time. But without derailing, I mean, do you mind? Like, What did you play? What, what was your part of the band? Well, I started off singing, um, I guess, in 1987. Uh, and then after... I sang for a few years. The bassist quit, and so I learned how to play bass to cover for that. And uh, gradually, I wasn't writing the songs, um, so gradually the guy who was writing the songs kind of uh, started singing more, and I sang less. And I, in the 90s, until we broke up, I played bass. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was in a few bands after that where I just played bass. Right. Well, you know, that was an interesting time period. That's kind of like the, the end of when I got in. I was a singer in that time period and a writer, um, and the grunge thing just really turned me off, so that kind of kicked me out of music for a while. Um, there's been some stuff that has come back on lately, though, that, that has been interesting. Um, but 
Um, so uh, you met Peter then, and uh, I guess uh, you know, obviously your your first involvement as far as the film was concerned was in Zeitgeist Moving Forward. Um, how did he approach you about that? Uh, the first involvement it was in Zeitgeist Addendum. Oh, um, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. And it's a recurring character. Um, when he filmed that, he basically asked friends uh, who lived in New York at the time where he was living to to appear in the various roles. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be visiting uh, and staying with one of his friends. Um, and he was looking for parts, and he knew that I was coming. Uh, and I guess he, he thought I was the one who looked, of his friends who looked, you know, the closest to what he imagined the businessman with the briefcase would look like. And so he just asked me if, if I would be in his film and I didn't have any idea what the part was, uh, but he told me to bring a suit and, um, and that's how I was in Zeitgeist Addendum. And at, right. the, at the time I had seen the first movie, but I didn't really, none of us had any idea what the second movie would be about. Right. And I guess, you know, it's just typical with things like that. I mean, did you really have any idea what it is you were participating in until you saw it, or? No, not until I saw it. Uh, you know, we had discussions. He's a, He likes to talk about politics and, and things a lot, so we, we generally all knew what his political ideas were, but we didn't know specifically what was going to be in the movie. Um, and I was... I guess it's fair to say I was pleasantly surprised by what was in the second movie. Um, after the first movie, I, I was happy with the direction of the second movie. Right. Well, I guess you said you were kind of a leftist, so and we often get labeled that in the Zeitgeist movement. I've noticed that just because you care about anybody other than yourself, you get called a leftist. <laughs> I may be closer to where you are, and I'm a. My views are very far left, uh, kind of towards libertarianism. Mm-hmm. It's funny because they call themselves, yeah, libertarians are, are very on the right from their perspective. But yeah, it's it's weird how that works out. And I've, I've kind of gone full circle. And I, I tell my listeners all the time that the, the right and left paradigm nowadays, just it seems to me like a like it's a distraction to make you think that, well, you know, if I want these things, then I have to be a Democrat. You know, if I want these things, then I have to be a, you know, a Republican, just to use the generic right-left paradigm for the United States. It's it's labor versus conservative, I think, in the United Kingdom. And they kind of give you this idea that you, uh, well, you can either have socialized health care or you can have civil rights. You can't have both. You know, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of misleading. And, um, I think that it, it's one of the divisionary tactics that the you know the World Socialist Party talks about is that it seems like they kind of want us to be bickering with each other all the time so that the people who are really in charge are never really put under scrutiny. And that's why, you know, I always kind of joke with people is they, they get really into that whole Democrat versus Republican thing. And I say, you know, how much has your life really significantly changed? You know, uh, it, it, it regardless of which one of these presidents they have, like, it was the one of the things that came up that I, I chuckled about was like, you know, people are really big on whether or not their president is pro-abortion or pro, you know, or anti-abortion. And I'm like, you know, my entire life, that has been an issue that has been debated, but it's never changed anything. The stance on abortion hasn't changed for decades. So it's like, so why is that so important? You know, you get pro-life presidents and it's, it's not like it's going to change anything. Um, you know, so, but yeah, there, there's just so much noise involved. And I guess, since you saw the film, I mean, what was your first impression then of the the resource based economy model? Um, I, you know, I was interested in it enough that um, I decided to become involved in helping set up the website. Um, I was surprised at the response to it. I think when uh, not many people know when Peter made the second movie, he didn't really set up the website. Uh, he just had an email address, and I think he was you know, expecting maybe you know, a few hundred or a thousand people to respond. Um, and he contacted me after the movie came out when the, the number of emails he was getting were were too many for him to handle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I started um, kind of getting more involved in the movement is helping him figure that out. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, that was it's pretty much just about your your knowledge of how to run websites is what got that part of it started. That's right. Yeah, in uh, helping him, I helped him uh, organize the emails and put them into a database so that he could uh, email everybody. Um, he just, you know, at the beginning, he was just handling them through a, a regular email account and trying to save them into folders and things like that. And that's when I started you know, realizing that it was um, you know, kind of a real thing and looking into it more. Um, right. In the movie, it's it's not really clear exactly what the Venus Project is and and where the ideas come from uh, to the point that it is now. Uh, when I first saw it, I, you know, it, I didn't know how much of it came from books and and was theoretical, and how much of it was actually you came. I didn't know all the years of research behind it, and that there were still uh, you know that Jacques and Roxanne were still actively working on it. Uh, so it took a while before I really understood what it was all about, even after seeing the movie. Well, um, you know, I guess then in, in retrospect, now that you've been involved with it for a while, um, I guess, I mean, I know like, for example, I mean, you said you live in obviously a different state than he did. And so you probably had to do a little bit of traveling to get, you know, to you know for your part in the movie to especially to once again be then into moving forward. And so what was working on moving forward like? Um, you know, both of them uh, were, my involvement was fairly small. In the addendum, it was just one shoot, and then moving forward, there were two different shoots. But um, the first one, I, I traveled up um, and stayed with him. The second one, I, I managed for the second shoot for moving forward, I managed to coordinate it with my work, so that I happened to already have travel expenses paid for because I was going to a conference, and then I just tacked it on to the, to the end of that. But it was just uh, you know, two brief shoots that lasted a couple of hours each time. Um, the moving forward was different in that you know, there were a lot of volunteers involved. Uh, right. With the, I think uh, the two different chapters um, helped out, and there were you know a lot of people there. And it was also different in that you know there were people asking to have their picture taken with me, and people knew who I was the second time. Um, as opposed to the first time, it was all uh, just Peter's friends who weren't impressed with me at all. <laughs> or, or were you, were you, I mean, is it just that they didn't know you, or you say there was something negative about it? Oh, I mean, the, it was just all of you know, all of Peter's friends in in uh, addendum. Right. Okay, well, so I guess what you're saying then is just the contrast is like, oh, hey, that's that guy. I want to get a picture with that guy. You know, he's the guy. The guy. The was, second time was much more, uh, you know, moving forward was much more intimidating uh, because uh, people, uh, you know, the people in the shoot in L.A. Um, were were uh, movie industry people. So um, there were people who asked me, you know, if I had an agent and who said that, you know, they thought that the role would do good things for my career. Uh, and they were asking me if I was coming to the opening in Los Angeles. And I just kind of kind of had to say I'm not really an actor and I'm not coming to the opening and I don't really have a career. Mm -hmm. uh, but just the the expectations of people in the second, you know, the, well, the third movie were a lot different than the second And it's still weird to me that people want to have their picture taken with me. <laughs> well, especially when you're dressed like that, you know, I guess, it, you know, you did have kind of an iconic position in addendum. And I remember like, you know, just that scene where, you know, the, that, that part of the, the music that tones and then you kind of fall to your knees and, you know, that was a really you know powerful moment anyway, you know, just that it was as if like your character was just suddenly utterly shocked by the reality of everything around him. You know, and um, <laughs> people in the yeah, chat room are asking, it's like, it's the guy in the suit, the one who at the end throws the, you know, of, of Zyka's moving forward, throws the suitcase of money to, at the bank. Um, yeah. Just so people know who it yeah. is we're talking about. And I remember, like, 
Um, Falling to my knees was was difficult because we had to shoot that over and over again. Uh, you know, the concrete floor. So and I had to do it you know, hard enough that it looked real. Right. Yeah, it kind of hurt my knees by the end. I probably did it 10 or 15 times. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. But I've I've always been sensitive, like, on my knees. Like, I can't even, like, when people, you see people going down on their knees to do something, like clean something or whatever, my, my knees are like, uh, no, we're not, we're not doing that, buddy. <laughs> They've always been like that. I've never, they will understand it. Because some people just do it and it's just no big deal. And when I see you doing it, I was like, wow, you know, that, ow, I could feel that, you know, through the screen. But still, I mean, aside from even that, it just, you know, it was, it was a powerful moment, you know, and uh, the way it tones with the music at that, you know, uh, very moment, there's kind of like a, I'm forgetting the term, but basically the music hits a, a high point right then. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I, there was actually something else I noticed, like about the, your part in uh, moving forward, you know, um, I tell people this, you know, is that I, I had sent Peter a link about a situation where there is, in fact, a street in New York where there are homeless people lying on the ground and then there are people stuffing their faces at expensive restaurants right next to them and then the stores with the $3,000 handbags, you know. And so when I had sent him that link and then I saw that in the in the film, I was kind of taken aback by, wow, I wonder if, you know, that's where he got that idea, you know, and then your character is standing there, you know, just watching that go on, you know, with the people stuffing the shrimp in their mouth and the little girls sleeping on the side of the, you know, sidewalk right there. And, you know, and I, I often tell people that, you know, this was not just a metaphor. He wasn't just trying to be dramatic. There really is a place in New York that's exactly like that. You know, with oh yeah, there's tons, tons of places like that in New York. Mm-hmm. Not so much the children, but definitely the homeless people. Yeah, that that was one differentiation I generally make. Child Protective Services doesn't let kids sleep on the side of the floor. They'll they'll grab you, but if you're an adult, they're not too interested. Um, but if you've been to the the larger cities in India, you know you definitely see children in situations like that, uh, even in the in the highly developed areas where there's skyscrapers, you know, there's still children begging on the streets. Right. It's very true. And that's, and as you guys just kind of keep marching along and, you know, you eventually reach the point in the back, you know, back of it. And then Peter does that same moment again, where it suddenly pans over to the riot police. And it's the, the same part of the song that you fell to your knees in, in, in addendum. And, you know, and then I remember as you're kind of facing off with the cop, you have what I refer to as like eventually to me this kind of Mona Lisa smile that's so subtle that I think many people might not have noticed it. But it was kind of like a a satisfaction moment as, you know, apparently because immediately after that, it pans back and there's like what looks like millions of people (laughs) in the streets, you know, kind of a kind of a smirk, like a knowing smirk. Because, yeah, because the cops trying to intimidate you and you're backed up by, you know, just billions of people and it's going on all over the world. And, you know, and I remember because then, then it goes into that part that, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the guitar is probably synthesized, but I remember the riff that starts up after that is probably like my favorite part of any of PJ's music. Um, I always wish he would just, re- you know, release an album of the various music that he used because a lot of it is, is really good. Um, uh, is that the Yes song? It could be. I don't know. Well, no, there's uh, it just like, oh, I'm, I don't want to do this over the air, but basically the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, yeah. It's just, it's, you know, because it starts, he goes into that guitar riff part, right, as it's panning across everybody. and It's really a powerful scene, but... I've always felt that rock music um, and heavy metal music in particular does not get used enough in films because, you know, it has a powerful energy, you know, that goes along with it. You know, fight scenes always seem to be techno, (laughs) you know, and, uh, you know, like, especially in clubs, there's always a fight scene with techno in a club somewhere. Somebody is beating someone up, you know. When it does get used, it it tends to get overdone, like too, too much heavy metal. Right. Yeah, and it's or not very good heavy metal. <laughs> it's even worse. I hadn't but, realized how much the music added until on the on moving forward when they sent out the um, the preview copy. It didn't have the music on it, 
Right. So, you know, like a week before it came out, I watched the whole thing with no music. Right. And it was good, but then when I saw the original, uh, saw the release version with the music, it, I really realized how much it adds. Definitely. You know, and that's, and that's the thing about it, you know, is that people, because, you know, Peter did work in advertising at one time as much as he hates that, to the point that when he edits the newsletter, he's like, please take this out. This looks like an ad. I hate that. Don't put it in there. <laughs> you know, he's polite to us about it, but he, he, he is so averted by advertising. He hates it um, so much. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, as a result, you know, he understands how to give a presentation that, that makes a point. And the funny thing is, is that it's people make accusations about that sometimes. And I have to point out to them that that's just filmmaking. Every film does that. You know, it's the ones who, who find like, well, like, you know, the, the spooky music doesn't appeal to them. I generally will give them like the orientation guide, which has no music in it at all. You know, and they can sit there and watch the, you know, the slideshow if that's what they want. These ideas don't require any kind of spooky music to be appealing, but it still is entertaining, you know, to add that element to it that goes along with the mood of what you're doing. And I think maybe people who aren't musicians maybe won't understand that quite as well as people who are. But, you know, there is a, a point to having the right music for the right moment, for the right presentation. So now, I mean, I know that you've also obviously you worked as pretty much the, the head administrator for the, you know, for the majority of the website functions. Um, and I know that's been a, a journey that has been both harrowing and rewarding. Um so, I mean, I guess, uh, is there anything that you've taken away from that that you'd want to share with the audience? Um, I mean, it definitely has been a long journey. Um, I think the the website and the chapters are kind of going through some growing pains. Um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to take an organization from the the you know, the state where it can all be done by one person to the state where it can be done by a team of lots of people in lots of different places. Right. And we're still going through those those growing pains. Right. And that's, you know, and it's interesting, actually, because uh, we run into that sometimes as the occasional problems with people who say that there's a hierarchical structure and, you know, and then they want to, they want to know, how, you know, like who's in charge and all of that. And I, when I'm trying to communicate to people about this, particularly when they say things like, you know, Peter's the leader and therefore whatever Peter says, you know, we're all accountable for. And, and I kind of, it's like being in the, being on the inside, I kind of chuckle at that because I'm like, you guys really don't know how little he does. I mean, he does a lot of work. That's not what I mean. But as far as like decisions for, what's going on in the forums or what we're doing in the newsletter, you know, he looks it over and he kind of oversees it sometimes, but, you know, we have endless meetings that he's not even at, you know, that, and even when he does show up to the meetings, he doesn't regulate them and he comments sometimes, but he'll go whole meetings without saying anything. And that's, that's one of the things that I, I try to tell people is that, you know, yeah, we have some organization, but that's required if you want to get anything done, but there's no super uber rigid hierarchy and, the coordinators, you know, don't really have authority. They just kind of give reports and they, you know, uh, then that's it. You know, every now and then they're called into a situation where they might have to make a decision, but it's not very common. Um, if there's somebody trying to call in via Skype, that's not the means to do it. If you want to be added, um, PM me on Skype or call into the uh, uh the basically the call in line that you can see right there in the chat and we'll go from there. If you guys need me to repost the numbers I can, but I believe they're at the top. But if you want to be added to the call, you have to PM me and tell me um if you're gonna come in via Skype. So that being said, otherwise you can call my toll free number one eight seven seven four eight three three one six zero. If that's if for some reason it would cost you any money, if it wouldn't cost you money, please call the phone number that's local to New York, 347-945-7747. I can go ahead and repost that in the chat for anybody who needs it. But um, I wanted to say a, go ahead. a little bit about the about the authority thing. I think that Peter and Jacques and Roxanne all have a similar problem which is 
you know, they continually say things like the movement is not the website and the, the movement is not the forum. And people have to understand that for the zeitgeistmovement.com and the Venus Project and all that associated stuff, those things are kind of the life's work of the people involved. And to the extent that um, the Venus Project represents Jacques and Roxanne and the Zeitgeist Movement represents Peter, they have a need to control what's attributed to them. So if someone you know, comes on to the Zeitgeist Movement forum and, and says something, Peter essentially is the one that that most directly impacts. And he has a right to control there what's at the website, what people are discussing, and what people say um, the Zeitgeist Movement is about because that's his platform for communicating his ideas. That's a completely different thing than the chapters and the you know, the all the other websites, um, and people don't seem to understand that, uh, for example, with Jacques, he needs to control, if someone says the Venus Project means this and the Venus Project is going to do that, he has a right to say, no, the Venus Project doesn't mean that. You know, and he can say the city and the Venus Project will be the circular city, not the square city. But that's different than him saying, you know, I order you in the future to build a circular city. Right. So both of them are just trying to make sure that it's clear what they're saying and that they're not being misrepresented. And people confuse that with some uh, assumption that they're trying to control uh, what people do in the future and they're they're looking at uh, the Venus Project not as the theoretical construct of Jacques Fresco. They're looking at it as a city in the future that they live in, and they just don't seem to understand. You know, he's saying, you know, this is my idea, and this is what's in my idea. He's not saying this is the city that you're going to live in, and this is what's going to happen in that city. In the same way with Peter, he's saying this is my movie and my idea of what should happen, and I have a right to control what's associated with me and that idea, that's completely different than you know, him saying, than him ordering people what to do and what not to do. Right. Well, you know, the thing of it is is that people have a tendency to, they don't really look at it from the perspective that they should be. They're not paying for the website. It's his website. And they can't go to someone else's website and then dictate to them how they will interact with their property. And yes, we eventually want to see to the evolution of property rights, but that doesn't mean that we live in a resource-based economy right now. I mean, these people who are saying that probably would not appreciate it if Peter showed up at their house and started you know, saying things that offended them. And you know, obviously they'd want them to leave. This is something that I'm, I'm going to bring up in my, my film about trolls is that uh, – People have a, Because of the advent of the Internet, people tend to forget that the Internet is actually very young in the history of mankind. And the cultural implications of what the Internet is, what it means, you know, what its function is, is you know, makes it difficult for us to make these distinctions. But the truth of the matter is somebody's website is essentially their home on the Internet. And you know, the analogy that I usually use is if we were at a civil rights meeting – and, you know, you were having it at your house and some guy showed up and started spewing racist stuff and trying to, you know, disrupt the meeting, then the person has every right to ask the person to leave. You know, it's that simple. You know, it, it, I mean, we don't have the right for, you know, if that racist person wants to go out on the public street corner and protest that we're having a civil rights meeting, that's fine. We don't have a right to, to censor him then. But when he's coming into our you know, uh, basically our meeting, and that's what the Zeitgeist forums are. You know, it's a place for us to meet, you know, and disrupting everything. You know, we generally try to talk to these people for a while. I mean, we had one of them on TeamSpeak the other day for like 12 hours. You know, but if, if it gets to the point that it's very clear that we're not going to get anything out of it, he's not going to agree, you know, he or she is not going to agree with us, and we're not going to agree with them, 
we're wasting both of our time by continuing to do it. And we especially like on TeamSpeak, you know, when somebody is talking on the microphone, only one person can talk at a time. And we've had people in the past who have, you know, just kind of held the mic for hours and hours and hours. And, you know, we're just not getting anywhere with them. And it's not, you know, they then usually say, well, you're, you know, you're silencing all dissent. Um, it depends on what kind of dissent we're talking about. But the ones who usually say that the loudest, which is always ironic to me, are the ones who are engaging in harassment, bullying and attacking kind of stuff. And they don't have any like real argument to make. You know, they just kind of want to be free to attack people, and well, then they the go around. Thing, the go thing ahead. that they, the thing that they really want, which they aren't aware of or are aware of and won't say, is that they want the audience. You right. know, no one's stopping them from making their own group. If if someone goes out and says, uh, "I want to do a resource-based economy not associated with." Jacques Fresco, and he doesn't approve of it, and this, you know, it's our own ideas, or we want to have a zeitgeist movement, but it's not associated with Peter and completely independent. Neither of them will do anything as long as the people make it completely clear that there's no association. But and the the people don't want to do that because they want the attention that Peter has received due to his movies. They want the thousands of people to hear what they have to say, but they don't have that right because they didn't make the movies and they didn't create the website, and the person who did doesn't agree with them. Right. And that's kind of what people don't understand. If nobody's trying to stifle dissent. They're trying to keep focus so that uh, Peter and the people who agree with him on certain things can talk about what they want to talk about. Well, they also have a tendency to forget that it's not like we force them to use the forums or TeamSpeak. So the idea of it being coercive is kind of silly. You know, as you said, that their motive really is the audience. It's like, and there's there's nothing to stop individual members of the movement from starting up their own message boards too. I mean, I did the same thing. I have a V Radio forum. And, you know, because it doesn't have the same audience, these people are not interested. And also because they know I don't, I don't put up with anything, you know, they'd have to not use logical fallacies. I told them, you know, you can be anti, you know, zeitgeist movement if that's what you want. I don't, you know, as long as you conduct yourself well enough, I don't care. You know, a couple of them went there, I think, posting just to test to see if I would ban them. And I didn't, you know, as long as they followed the rules. You know, so it's it's not like it's a lockdown. You know, anybody is 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 willing to. You know, is every anybody is totally capable of making their own form if that's what they want to do. You know, and that's why I the people who, for example, say it's totalitarian. You know, I'm like no, it it's not. <laughs> it, you can go make your own if that's what you want. You, you know, if you don't get anybody joining you, well, that that's not on us. That's on you. You know, and that's. You know, the vast majority of the people who use the forums are okay with what's going on there, or they wouldn't be there. Um, and that's, that's basically what I, it is, you know, it is a dicey situation, you know, basically, but, um, is that, you know, because people ask, you know, well, what about censorship and what about this? And what about that? We, we, does, we discuss things and we debate things all the time. You know, it's a question of, uh, what, what the conduct is and what the motive is, because in many cases, like you said, we get people who maybe they, they want to hijack the membership towards some goal of theirs, whether it's the psychedelic drug users or we had that guy who uh wanted to do the equal money system so he showed up and you know on our forum and started spamming that everywhere like in all kinds of different you know areas and we debate him a little bit on it and it then it was clear that he just wasn't listening he was there to spam his equal money stuff everywhere because he was hoping that people would abandon the venus project model and instead try to do this equal money thing um and that's an example of somebody who's basically at that point wasting our time. We can't debate with him. He wants, you know, us to be doing something other than what we're doing. And at that point he's misusing the forum, you know. And I and I don't think people recognize that. You know, they don't they don't want to see it that way. So Well, those people don't and most people do, but the few who complain about it don't. Yeah, that's true. That is another thing I think is is very important is that we we run into this all the time is that it's it's really just a loud minority, loud to, enough to make it seem like there's more of them. And I remember the days when we had people who would even 
go so far as to make sock puppets to agree with themselves <laughs> so that they can make it look like there is this huge problem. There's so many people who have a problem with what's going on in the forums. And it's amazing to me how silly that can get. Cause I had a guy on my Facebook a while ago say, you see, you know, things in the forums are so bad now that the only people that are using them is the coordinators. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, he's like, well, it is, I guess I didn't really think about it. And I'm like, yeah, you didn't think about it. You repeat that stuff enough and people will actually believe it, you know, but it wasn't true, you know, and that's, that's one of the other things I'm learning when I do my research for this troll documentary is the way that, you know, I love the internet and I'm glad it's here and it's allowed, it's facilitated a lot of communication, but because of the nature of forum communication in particular, it's very easy to, to just put so much noise out there. Um, there's like a delay in the replies like uh, somebody told me to call into a radio show recently uh, because there was this lady who they said was debunking the Venus Project. I guess she was um, chasing down people who advocated communitarianism. So I call into the show and the lady says, well, I have a lot of problems with the founder of the Venus Project. I said, oh, OK, so what are those? And she didn't even know Jock's name. She couldn't even say the guy's name. <laughs> She's on a radio show talking about it, but she doesn't know about it. Now, the reason this is relevant to what I'm talking about is that she wouldn't debate me on the air about it, but she offered to write a blog about it, and then I could respond to that. And I'm like, yeah, I've I've done that before. It means that you can take me out of context, and you can ignore the points that I made that debunk the points that you're making, and just respond to the ones that you do have an answer for to make it look like you're still involved in the debate, you know all the different problems that come up with text debate. But um, yeah, she didn't, she did not want to argue with me. She just wanted to log on, you know, to a radio show, push her book because she has books of her own, uh, push down any other efforts that sounded anything like hers and then, and, and move on. And the internet unfortunately facilitates that. It facilitates a lot of good, but it also facilitates a lot of crap. Um, and that's the, beyond just the, the ability that people have, have, have taken it as far as being able to harass people on the Internet um, and get away with that. That's, it's such a pain in the neck to stop that. And, go ahead. I agree. Yeah. I was going to say, with, and you, can, you know more about the Venus Project uh, even than I do, but the impression that I've always had is that it doesn't matter how different an idea is from what's what Jacques has proposed. If someone could make a logical scientific argument for something like equal money or whatever it was um, and present it to him in a rational way, he would change his mind on it. Mm -hmm. Do you th agree with that? Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, wait a minute. Re-ask your question. I, I wasn't sure what you were getting at first. It, like it doesn't matter what how different an idea is if someone uh, felt that the venus project was wrong about the monetary system and that bartering or equal money or local currency or just some other thing would work and they could demonstrate it scientifically and logically to him he would he would change his opinion oh on yeah it. no absolutely and I, and i've seen that actually that's why I've debated with Peter and Jock about things and changed their minds about it. And I say debate in a very loose term. That's another thing I'd point out is that when you really talk to Peter and Jock, they're very reasonable as long as you're showing respect and, you know, you, you're not talking out of your derriere. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people on the Internet in particular that think pretty highly of themselves because they read Wikipedia and they get into arguments with either of them, and they don't really know what they're talking about. And unless we go along with whatever poorly crafted ideas they have, then then there's something wrong with us. That's how they project it. But in the past, I've seen it. You know that in fact, that's that's something I pointed out during the Stefan Molyneux interview was that um, when I had him on here, it was that it doesn't matter if we're wrong because if we're wrong about any given aspect of the Venus Project then it changes. It's that simple. It changes to whatever is scientifically sound. Jacques actually said that in one of his recent videos because people asked about the test city and such. And he said, well, then we test the test city. And if my, you know, he said that if my designs don't work, then, then we change the designs to something else. That's why we have to have a test city, you know, because that's the scientific method. 
he has proposals, he has hypotheses about what he think will, thinks will work in the city design, but we need to test them. Honestly, most of them, I think, looking at them are pretty damn solid. I'm not really worried about any of them not working, but still, the scientific method dictates that you go with what you can prove. So I guess the question, you know, the answer to your question is yes. Yeah, and that's uh, most of the critics, I think, uh, refuse to, what, what they want is for someone, Peter or Jacques or whoever, to change their mind, but they're not willing to do the work to prove why. Right. That's well, and I think it's largely because they people get really emotionally attached to their given worldview. And that's why I said sometimes arguing with free market capitalists in particular, it, it feels like you're argue, like an like it feels like an argument between an atheist and uh, someone who's religious. And and I hate to say it that way, but you know, like once you get some of the things, for example, Austrian economists believe are bordering on religious and their level of irrational, and it makes it hard to talk to them because... Well, I mean, they make assumptions about human nature which haven't so far been proven. Right. It's just been a cop-out. Um, and they they also make these weird assumptions, like the one I always bring up is like this argument I got into with this guy uh, on YouTube. He calls himself Lady Addis. And uh, he's been on our team speak and was very cordial. So I don't, I don't dislike the person. I don't, I don't want to get that across. But you know, at one point I argue with him, and, and we're talking free market stuff. And I, and I, even he admitted that the free market alone is not a good idea. But he said that statistically proven, supposedly that uh, it's statistically proven that with production, um, wages will rise, as if it was a law of physics. It was empirical that your boss will pay you more solely because you are more productive. And I said, the problem with that theory, and it's just a theory, is that outsourcing and automation proves the opposite. They're not going places, you know, they're not giving people more money based on productivity. They're going to countries where the economy is so terrible that the people will accept as little as possible. And as I found out when I did my show about Mexico, because I had this really great guy on, his name is Ed. And he came on to tell me a lot about the history of Mexico that I didn't even know about. But, he, you know, even in the presence of Mexico, he pointed out that now they're shutting down plants in Mexico because the people in Mexico aren't quite desperate enough. <laughs> so now they're moving to other countries like, you know, Bangladesh, India, and, and they're putting their target reticles on Africa because you have so many desperate people there, you know, that it, it, it comes down to that, they're, they, you know, they can get productivity out of anybody. But rather than trying to get productivity out of, you know, giving somebody a decent wage and a decent living, they want to go to places where people live so horribly that they have no choice but to accept whatever scraps you throw throw to them off the table. Yeah, I used to I used to do computer simulations, and one of the things I learned doing the simulations is that the the theories about the way people are going to act and the reality of how they act. Um, not only do they not match up, you know, a hundred percent, but the effect of it not matching up is a lot, a lot of times, a lot greater than you would think it would be. Mm -hmm. The example that I think of is um, uh, lines at a supermarket and people jockeying to try to find the shortest line, mm -hmm. and the idea that. Um, if you have, you know, one queue and everybody is grouped together and then the person at the front goes to the shortest line each time, mm -hmm. um, is that better than just having, uh, you know, 20 lines and people decide for themselves? And when you run the simulations, the answer is if, if people were perfect at always picking the best line, then um, it doesn't make any difference. But if people are not perfect, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, putting people all in, through one queue and sending them to the next available works a lot better in reality than letting them um, decide for themselves. And it's because people don't make decisions rationally and they're not 100% accurate. And with the economy, you know, economists basically assume can't remember the exact right term, but, you know, rational, self-interested actors in the free market. 
that they're going to do what's in their best interest all the time and that they're going to do it reliably. And the, the way people actually act is very different from that. And the effects are even more radically different from that. So the, the way the free market you know, theory says people will act and what really happens in the real world is, is so different that the theory doesn't doesn't really hold water at all. Well, the funny thing is on that, Noel, is that even if everybody did act in their own best interest, that doesn't really necessarily work out in the long run. It's like, especially about the property rights issue, I had a kind of a libertarian friend of mine on the ropes about this recently because I said to him, the reason that we're worried about the quote-unquote free market is that even in the slightly regulated market we have now, people are fully inclined as consumers to just go buy whatever they want, irrespective of the effect that it has on the environment. You know, um, I guess the, the best example that I brought up, for example, is Stormcloud's Gathering. I had him on a show a while ago, um, was that, you know, people are really big on private property rights. Well, right now in Michigan, my home state, private property rights are being abused by Nestle. They're sucking all of the fresh water out of our state and pumping it all over the world. And there's nothing we can do about it because it's their the, water. What the free market people you know, will say is, well, we'll we'll give uh, rewards and you know we'll adjust tax codes and we'll give credits for carbon and and whatever. And then all these um, these rational actors will change their behavior to make the most profit. If we you know if we tax carbon and we give rewards for planting trees and things, somehow that will fix uh, everything because everyone will do what's in their best interest. But it, even if you if you made all all the changes, it just doesn't work that way because people don't always reliably do what's in their best interest and you can't even determine scientifically what a person will think is in their best interest. Well, yeah, at least not in this this value system. I mean, a lot of what you just said could be used as an argument against our resource-based economy model until you factor into the notion that one of the major reasons for this is because things like advertising have gone beyond just, hey, I have this cool product, and have turned into a, a, a I mean, just to be blunt, it's it's mind control. I mean, they're putting uh, devices on kids' heads and scanning their brains while they're watching commercials to determine what colors to use, what sounds to use, right. what, you know, that's, we're, we're going beyond the issue of just the, you know, hey, I got a cool product, and I, and I bring that up on V Radio all the time, but it's one of the reasons for that irrationalness, what's in their best interest. I mean, it's like the way they convinced women to smoke, you know, and the fact that people are still smoking, even though it's obvious that they really shouldn't be, you know, is a total victory on the part of the advertising companies. And when you when you look into that study, I mean, I don't, everybody who listens to V Radio has already heard this example a billion times, but they brought in Edward Bernays, a sociologist, psychologist, you know, a nephew of Sigmund Freud to learn how to brainwash women to think that cigarettes were their were their freedom, that they were extensions of their freedom, and that you know they made them strong and independent if they smoked cigarettes. You know, and I always bring up, you know, my mom died of lung cancer because of that. You know, is that it's they knew what they were doing. They engineer these things to make you want stuff that doesn't make any sense, and that's one of the major things that we take off the table in the resource based economy model because all of that goes away. You know. People, you know, fashion is a huge example of that. And that's where you get the ridiculous $3,000 handbags. I mean, seriously, I mean, people, this is one of the other things is when they say that the price mechanism is the best way to, to handle resource allocation, you know, please tell me what about any handbag could ever make it worth $3,000. You know, what resource allocation, I mean, unless the damn thing is made out of solid gold, you know, <laughs> What the hell could they possibly be doing? You know, and as Peter pointed out in Moving Forward, $3,000 handbag that was probably made by sweatshop laborers in some third world country for like $7 or something. You know, but it's and got I, I think I, I, I can answer that question, and, and that's the, that it's, they create scarcity, and that's what makes, because it's expensive, it's more scarce. And so that causes people to think that it's more valuable because people are programmed into that. If something is scarce, it's, you know, I need it and it's, it's worth more. But as soon as you make it so that 
every handbag, anybody who wants it can can get it, then that value goes away. That was something actually that I remember because it's about that's definitely about values because like the when the when the Spanish showed up and it depends on which tribe individually because this wasn't true of all of them but when the Spanish showed up particularly the uh you know in the South American and Mexican colonies they were obsessed with taking all the gold and there were a lot of Native American tribes that were kind of confused about that they were like why do they want the pretty rocks you know these people are really interested in these rocks you know you can't eat them you know you can't i mean you, they make pretty jewelry but why would they care about this stuff so much and and that's you, you never really think about the fa- the the various ways that there have been other things like that cuz gold i mean we started using it in electronics recently but what's the value of it you know just because there isn't much of it it didn't even matter that it has no function you know, I mean, it didn't matter that it was just, you know, I, I don't even like the look of gold personally, but, you know, it didn't matter that it wasn't really a practical item and really had no purposes other than Probably that. The, the most conspicuous example I can think of is the um, the iPhone app that someone created that was the I Am Rich app. Mm-hmm. And all it did was basically display an image and they sold it for, I think, $1,000 for a large amount of money. And people actually bought it because it was expensive and they could show other people that they had this expensive item. <laughs> you know, it's just an example that demonstrates power if I can afford to buy it. And of course, Apple uh, removed it from the store, but they did sell some of it before it was removed. Oh, my God, that is so great. Wow, Peter should have put that in a movie somewhere. <laughs> All it is is an app that says that I'm rich and therefore I get prestige because I purchased. Oh yeah, it displayed an image, and I, I think you might have been able to pick from multiple images, but it basically just puts an image on your phone that you should you could show people to show that you had spent the money to buy the app. <laughs> oh my god, I could do a whole show just about that. That's amazing. Make sure you send me the link to that later if you have anything on that. That's so great. Yeah, I'll send you the link. That's so amazing. That's, uh, they had to add a rule to the uh, to the Apple uh, new terms, which said it, an app had to do something useful. Right, right. And that, that was specifically added in response to that app. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, there's somebody on the switchboard here, but let me let me see if they wanted to talk. Hello, caller. Were you here to ask questions, or were you just listening? Me? Yeah, you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just listening, man. I actually, uh, um, my name is Dante, by the way. I was in the, from the Arizona chapter. But, yeah, man, I was just uh, listening in, you know, enjoying the show. It's my first time calling in or listening, because I don't have Internet right now. But, yeah, it was a great show so far. And, yeah, it was hilarity just a moment ago. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, that that's going to stick with me for a while. I literally had to cover my mouth because I was laughing so hard that I didn't want to overpower as Noel was trying to talk about that. But all right, well, thank you for tuning in. I'll go ahead and remute you. Um but anyway, um well, Noel, I mean, we're down to the last 6 minutes and I guess do you want to share any powerful memories that have come out of you either working on the films or with the movement in general? Anything that's really I mean, like, did it did it change your life in a way that you think of your like your life before the movement and then afterwards, or or any specific thing that sticks out? Any story you'd like to share? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I can't think of anything in specific. You know, it's been uh, it's kind of been the last two years, the most important activity I've been involved in, uh, but there's so many things that have happened, and there's so many friends that I've made, and uh, there are also some bad things that have happened as a result of it, um, but I, I can't single out any any specific thing. Right. Well, um, I can say that, you know, uh, the only thing that ever occurred to me about this is I remember having having talked to you that your voice sounds like you would be a much bigger person 
than than the character that you know you're looking at is because you look like kind of a small I mean not short but like you know just kind of a thin person and I'm not saying you sound fat or anything but your voice sounds like somebody that would be huskier I, I mean have you ever been told that before no I have not been told that specifically hmm. but yeah that's the other thing that occurred to me it was just like for some reason your voice but I and I remember like how weird it was like when you were in Teamspeak. Yeah, like the the first time, and people were looking at your your picture and going, "Hey, is that the guy?" <laughs> I, I mean, did you get a lot of PMs about that? Yeah, and uh, you know, early on there were a lot of people who challenged whether Peter actually made the movie and whether I was really in it, and um, yeah, and there, there still are you know people who think it was made by the CIA or the Rothschilds or whoever whoever it is that they think makes these movies. Right. You know, and that's uh, <laughs> some of the stuff that I've heard people say that, that is so crazy, you know, and and we've been over that a lot, actually. Somebody just came out. I don't know if you watched uh, Aaron Moritz's latest film called Zeitgeist Exposed, which is just him taking like little picture characters and having them talk to each other about all the crazy things that we've been accused of. Have you seen that yet? No, I have not. Oh, I'm totally going to send you that. I sent it to Peter one day because he was in a bad mood. <laughs> he liked it so much that he posted it on Facebook. But uh, it, it just, it's it, by the time the, the little video is over, um, it's, a, it's a satire. So, you know, there's this guy, the, the main character of the story is, is, you know, representing what the Zeitgeist Movement is actually about. And he goes to this, you know, Zeitgeist Movement meeting and, you know, there's all kinds of crazy silliness that's on there. And um, for those of you who want to see this video who haven't already, uh, the account name is Say Days Ago. Um, and you can look up Zeitgeist Movement Exposed. And it's an amazing parody on all the different things that people have accused us of. And, and by the time the video is over, he's like saying, oh, so you're saying that we're Jew-hating Zionist, you know, Luciferian Christians? And the guy was like, well, yeah, you kind of got it. There's still a few nuances missing, but it, you, you almost got it. <laughs> you know? At the very end of it, he just says, if you don't agree with the resource-based economy, that's okay. But please, people, be reasonable. Um, and it just because it, it is weird, especially the kind of backlash that we've gotten from the truth movement. And I, I think that some of that is because of the fact that a lot of the truth movement is very Austrian economical and they they really turned on some of us because of that. But the thing is, is that I've learned about the truth movement through this experience is that it is very fragmented. And a lot of these people have very different views on things. And that's how we end up being called Zionists by some people and then anti-Semitic by other people. Yeah. And, you know, um, and yeah, then I know all, so with the truth movement and, and that stuff, I think a lot of that is is false dichotomies and it, like with the 9-11 stuff you know i'm constantly debating with people who say it has to be either this or that and uh, i don't understand why it can't be both like right. uh, there, there are people who believe that um you know uh terrorists from saudi arabia organized all these planes and flew them into the world trade center but that somehow it's impossible that go ahead and finish your somehow statement. it's impossible that in conjunction with that they might have also been able to plant bombs. Like to me, it's perfectly plausible if they can fly all those planes and organize that. You know, it, it makes sense that for insurance they might have also put some bombs in the building. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't have to be either or, and it also. It doesn't have to be. They may have had some people who did work for the CIA if they infiltrated mm -hmm. groups all over. You know, it's and I've never have understood. Uh, or the CIA may have had infiltrators in their organization, um, but it, none of that stuff has to be either or. Well, the main point that I think that Peter was getting at in Zeitgeist One was just that there are unanswered questions. The truth movement can generally agree on one thing: we know what didn't happen. That doesn't mean we know it did, but it's, you know, and, and, and the other thing about it is that some people are so obsessed with the first film and, and the things that are in it that they continually, like, they'll say Zeitgeist Moving Forward debunked, and it won't have anything about Zeitgeist Moving Forward in it at all. It'll all be generally about Zeitgeist 1, Part 1, 
So thanks again for coming on, Noel. Um, and uh, I really appreciate it. Those of you who are listening, please visit my website, v or radioorg Thanks and, for having uh, me. I enjoyed it. No problem, Noel. I'll talk to you briefly off the air after we're out of here. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.